This past week, our country celebrated the day upon which our founders declared independence from England. And now we celebrate that with parades and fireworks and parties and cookouts. But the years following that declaration were wild and hard years, filled with war and instability and the arduous building of a new country. Spearheading all of those efforts was George Washington, who led the American military during the Revolutionary War and who then served as the first president of the United States. He was enormously popular among the citizens of our country. He was the only president in our history to be unanimously elected. 100% of the Electoral College votes went to him. Imagine that. His personal desire was to retire after his first term. He did not want to continue. He even had his farewell speech written up and ready to go. But his friends and advisors strongly encouraged him to continue on and to run for another term. You see, even in our earliest years, our nation was quite divided. And Washington was so widely respected that he was in a unique position to keep the country together. Thomas Jefferson wrote to Washington saying, North and South will hang together if they have you to hang on. So he ran for office again and was again unanimously elected. And as his second term came to an end, many were encouraging him to run again for a third term. That, that two-term system that we have wasn't in place until the 1950s. And the governor of Connecticut, John Trumbull, wrote to Washington saying that unless he served a third term, the next election of president, I fear, will have a very ill-fated issue. No pressure, right? Nevertheless, Washington declined a third term. But he didn't leave his station without imparting some final words of wisdom to his fellow citizens. So he, he dusted off that farewell speech, had it revised and updated, and then he delivered it to the American citizens. It's a fascinating read, endearing at times and prophetic in many ways. In that address, Washington spoke intimately, surprisingly intimately, of his gratitude for his beloved nation and his zeal for their well-being. He gave guidance for how citizens should relate to one another, how the North and the South in the East and the West, all needed each other. He also gave direction for international policy, especially regarding Europe. His departure for public life was a delicate moment in our nation's history, and even though the people could no longer hang on Washington himself, they, they could attend to his parting words. The drama of Jesus' life and ministry is also characterized by a farewell speech of sorts. And his followers needed every word of it. John is the gospel writer who records that for us. So I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We are approaching an intimate scene 
in John 15. Jesus' hour has come. This night, Jesus will be betrayed and then put on trial and then crucified. But before he departs where his friends cannot follow, Jesus speaks his parting words to them. The disciples are afraid and confused. And Jesus loves them to the end by preparing them for his departure. The main idea of this sermon is that Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure by teaching them how to relate to himself, to one another, and to this world once he is gone. Jesus prepares them by telling them how to relate to himself, to one another, and to this world once he's departed them. And we live in that time that Jesus anticipated. Jesus has ascended to the Father's presence. And these words guide us as we follow him through this life, awaiting his return. So let's attend to Jesus' words to us in this moment, this morning. First, Jesus teaches us how to relate to him in his absence. We see this in the first 11 verses. Listen as I read. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. While these verses are worthy of all the time and study you can give to it, this is a rich and beautiful metaphor that, at its core, teaches us how to relate to Jesus by depending on him. For spiritual life. This seems intuitive at first, but when we pause to reflect on what Jesus is doing here, it's, it's actually a bit surprising, isn't it? This isn't how mortals prepare people for their passing, and it's not how Washington addressed his fellow citizens in his farewell, because we might expect Jesus to help his followers by teaching them how to move on from him, but he doesn't do that. Rather, he tells them that as he departs, 
they must abide in him. Or as some translations say, remain in him. There is no moving on from Jesus. And that is because Jesus is the vine. We see that in verses 1 and 5. That is to say, Jesus is the only source of spiritual life. The imagery makes it clear that union with Jesus is the way to life. The one who abides in him has life. And those who are apart from him shrivel up and die. But all who are connected to him live. And this resonates with what Jesus has said many times in this gospel. Throughout these pages, Jesus says that he's the living, he gives the living water. He said that he is the bread of life. And he has just told them moments before in John 14, verse 6, that he himself is the life. Jesus has life in himself, and that life flows to all those who are connected to him. And this means that we are utterly dependent on Jesus to live spiritually. He is the vine, and we are the branches. There is a vital, organic connection between the two. And we see this union described in all of the abiding language. It's all over this passage. In verse 4, we are instructed to abide in Jesus, and he abides in us. In verse 7, Jesus' words abide in us. And then in verse 10, we're told to abide in his love. Rather than moving on from Jesus... We are utterly dependent on him. There is, an, there is an obvious independent spirit in us Americans. And there's a lot to appreciate about that. But an independent attitude is downright deadly to your spiritual life. If you want spiritual independence with no authority over you and no one to give an account to, you will never have spiritual life. And you will never know true freedom. The only way, this text tells us, the only way to have spiritual life is to declare your dependence on Christ and your need for his sacrifice for your sins. There is no life apart from complete dependence on Jesus. As the life-giving vine, Jesus produces good fruit in us, the text says. And this fruit is more important than we might think. Verse 8 says that this fruit is how we show ourselves to be Jesus' disciples. Now, this fruit includes many things, some of which are mentioned in this passage, such as love, joy, obedience, and as we'll see in a little bit, public testimony and witness. So this is important for us because fruit is how we know we're alive. If you've ever been to an arboretum like Longwood Gardens, many of the, the plants and trees there are identified with, with placards that give you the name of the plant or the tree. I've also seen this kind of thing at flower shops when I'm shopping for my wife. But, but that's not how things work in nature. You don't know a tree 
in the woods by its placards. You know it by the signs of life, by the leaves and the fruit that it bears. Friend, don't look for assurance in Christian placards, in a prayer card or a journal entry. Rather, look for the fruit of repentance and the fruit of faith in your life right now. And let me remind you that this search for assurance and fruit is a group project. It's a church project. It's not an individual assignment. And because it's a group project, that protects us on the one hand from blindness, and on the other hand, it protects us from doubt. So this fruit is important for our own assurance. Fruit in the branches is also important to show the authenticity of the vine, the authenticity of Jesus as the life giver. Did you notice in verse 1 that in verse 1, Jesus does not say, I am the vine. He says that later on. But in verse 1, that's not what he says. In verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. That's because Jesus isn't just coming up with some clever analogy. He's not like, hey, our relationship is kind of like this. Jesus is actually leaning into almost a dozen passages from the Psalms and prophets where Israel is referred to as a vine. And almost every time in those passages, Israel is being rebuked as an unfruitful vine. And we read an example of that from Psalm chapter 80. But Jesus is not like that. He is the true vine. And one mark of his authenticity as the life giver is the fruit that he produces in the branches, in all of those who are connected to him. This fruit is also crucial for the Father's glory. We see this in verse 8. Verse 8 says that the Father is glorified when we bear much fruit. We bear fruit not so that we look so great, but so that God looks as great as he really is. And the Father has a unique interest in the fruitfulness of the branches because he's described here as the husbandman, or we might say the gardener. Verse 2 shows how he tends to the fruitful branches, pruning them so that they grow even more fruit. But there is also a warning embedded in this metaphor. Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And verse 7, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them up and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. We have precious few trees in our yard, one of which is an evergreen with very little green. Instead, it's dominated almost all the way up by brown, brittle branches. It's dying. Might that describe you, friend? The Christian life is marked by its fruit. There's no such thing as an unfruitful Christian. If an honest assessment of your life reveals an alarming lack of fruit and spiritual barrenness, then turn to Christ. He is the only way to have life. 
trust in him. Lean on him and be united to the only one who gives life. Well, this metaphor concludes with a surprisingly precious offer in the face of Jesus' departure in this brutal death that awaits him. He offers his friends an enduring experience of his love and joy. He says in verse 9 that he loves us even as the Father loved him. He invites us to live in that love. And then he tells us in verse 11 that he speaks these things so that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. Imagine that. We can have an enduring experience of divine love and joy. And with such a precious promise, we must ask, how do we experience that love and joy? Well, Jesus tells us right in the middle there in verse 10. He says, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Now, it's not that Jesus' love is conditioned on our obedience. No, in verse 9, Jesus says he's, he has already set his love on us. But we experience his love and joy as we obey him. I will always love my sons, and there is nothing that they can do or not do to make me stop loving them. But we experience a joyful unity when they respond to my loving instruction with loving obedience. Brothers and sisters, nothing can separate us from God's love. But we experience his love and joy as we walk in obedience to him. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And throughout the Bible, God's commands are described as delightful, as sweeter than honey, as better than gold, as a tree of life. Friends, God's commands are not oppressive and harsh. They are for our good and for our joy. I often pray for myself, for my children, and for all of you that we would know the joy of obedience that Jesus speaks of here. This calls us then to expose the lies of pleasure that our choice sins offer to us. When you feel the pleasure of pornography, remind yourself that that is the way to death. When you care what others think of you more than what God thinks of you, remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you feel the allure of anger, remind yourself that the anger of men does not produce the righteousness of God. When you feel the burning satisfaction of bitterness, remind yourself that it will bear bitter fruit and that there is freedom in forgiveness. C.S. Lewis has famously told us that we are far too easily pleased. And he says that our sins are celebrating in mud pies when we could experience the fullness of joy in a vacation at the beach. When your desires take you down the path of sin, tell yourself the truth of Scripture that there is more joy in obeying God than in all the fleeting pleasures 
that this world has to offer you. These are some of the ways that we depend on Jesus. He has departed to be with the Father, but we still depend on him for spiritual life, for bearing spiritual fruit, and for experiencing love and joy in this world. But how do we relate to one another? Jesus tells us in verses 12 through 17. Verse 12 begins, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I called you friends, for all that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Well, you can see the tight connection that Jesus draws between these two sections. He says, if we keep his commandments, we will abide in his love and joy in verses 10 and 11. And then he says that commandment is that we love one another in verses 12 and 17. So to say it another way, we experience God's love and joy by loving one another. A relationship with Jesus always involves a relationship with his people. And Jesus is very specific about what this love looks like. He says in verse 12 that his commandment is that we love one another as he has loved us. And then he follows that right up in verse 13 by saying that there is no greater love than that one lay down his life for his friends. Well, that's precisely how Jesus has loved us, isn't it? He laid down his life for us on the cross, taking the death and judgment that we deserve. To make that very personal, it should have been you on that cross. It should have been me forsaken by the Father. But it wasn't. Because Jesus laid down his life for us. And notice how intimate Jesus' love is, that he would call us his friends in verse 15. We are his friends because he shares all that he has with us. Servants only do what they're told, and they don't get to ask why. But Jesus lets us in on everything that he and his Father are doing. And do you see how personal and specific this friendship is? Jesus reminds them in verse 16, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Jesus' love is personal and specific. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knows your name. And he calls you by your name. He chose you before the foundation of the earth. And he set his love on you specifically. There is no room for bragging or humble bragging here. 
Jesus didn't choose you because you were so great, nor because you were particularly pitiful. No, he chose you because his love is personal, and he set his love on you. Do you see what this then means for how we're to obey this command to love one another? It means personal, sacrificial love, because Jesus' love is personal. This is one of the best reasons for church membership, because church membership makes love personal. Membership puts names and faces to your love and commits you to specific people who have phone numbers and addresses and with whom you gather every week. And if you're not a member of a church, I would challenge you to consider how you've committed to personally loving any particular Christian. Jesus' love is also sacrificial. And so it won't do to love merely in sentiments or words or Facebook likes or hearts. That's not love. Biblical love, Christ-like love, lays down its life for particular people. It costs you something real and tangible for the good of someone that you know personally. And sacrificial love is especially shown over time. It's easier to like someone that you've just met, right? We all put our best foot forward and smile and shake hands. But it's hard to keep that up over time. Because any long-term relationship will experience tension and difficulty and pain. We experience this kind of difficulty in our family relationships, don't we? Because they are necessarily long-term. Eventually, we will all hurt one another and sin against one another. So one way to lay down your life is to endure with one another year after year. We live in a peculiar time and place where we can respond to hard relationships in the church by simply driving to the church down the road. But for most of Christian history, and in most places in the world right now, that's not possible. There is no church down the road. It's gathering with these people or disobeying God's command to gather at all. It's loving these brothers and sisters or loving no brothers and sisters. So let me challenge us afresh to sacrificially endure in loving one another, especially when it costs us something. One of the blessings of the local church is having a specific group of people who love and care for you because this world is a hostile place for Christians. And so Jesus prepares us for relating to that hostile world. We see that in the remainder of chapter 15 and then into chapter 16, verse 4. So I'll pick up reading in chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. For I had not done for, ha- for I had not done among them the works which none other man did. They had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogue. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. Well, there's no two ways about it. People in this world will hate followers of Jesus. Jesus is clear in verse 18, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Now this doesn't mean that every unbeliever wants your head on a platter. Not everyone who rejected Jesus wanted him dead. Rather, Jesus is trying to prepare his followers for inevitable opposition. It's hard to be hated. And sometimes that hate can be harsh or even deadly. We see Jesus preparing them in chapter 16, verse 1. He doesn't want them to be offended, or some translations might say stumble or fall away. Jesus is trying to protect his disciples from leaving him when times get hard. He's trying to protect them from apostasy. These hard times can be especially painful and confusing, Jesus says in 16.2, that some are going to persecute them by casting them out of places of worship and think that by persecuting Christians that they are actually serving God. It's one thing to be persecuted at the hand of one who openly rages against God, but imagine how disorienting it would be to suffer at the hands of one who professes to believe in the same God you do, or even the same Christ. That was the kind of suffering that Protestants and Puritans experienced in Europe hundreds of years ago. And it was the kind of suffering that our African-American brothers and sisters experienced in our not-too-distant past. Suffering at the hands of those who use Christ's name and words to justify their actions. But Jesus prepares us for this suffering. He prepares us simply by telling us, doesn't he? We see this in chapter 16, verse 1 and 4. So we shouldn't respond with outrage and shock when opposition comes against us. Opposition to Christians is the norm. 
And the relative ease we have experienced is the exception and not to be expected of the Christian life. He also prepares us by telling us that one reason for the hate is because the world really hates God. Jesus says they hate you because they hated me. And if they treated treated the master with contempt, they will treat the slaves worse. So to be clear, Jesus won't let us get away with thinking that all of the, the negative relationships and the negative experiences that we have are all persecution for Christ. No, if, if you're driving like a jerk and, and people start honking their horn at you, that's not persecution. If you're lazy at your job and you get confronted about it, you're not suffering for Jesus. No, Jesus is clear that the world is opposed to Christians because they're opposed to Christ. This is what Jesus means when he says in verse 22, if I had not come unto them, they had not sinned, but now they have no cloak for their sin. It's not as if no one had sinned before Jesus walked the earth. Rather, Jesus coming clarified that sin is fundamentally rebellion against God. That's what Jesus says again in verse 24. So, What are we to do in the face of such hostility? Call people names? Demand our rights? Build walled-off Christian communes to protect ourselves? No. Our witness is our response to a hostile world. Our testimony to Christ is our response. In verse 27, Jesus says that we will bear witness to him in the face of this opposition. And that can seem daunting, but we're not alone. Jesus says in verse 26 that he will send the comforter or helper who will bear witness to Jesus. We then, in the power of the Spirit, are called to testify to Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our unique responsibility as a church. This is our unique responsibility as Christians, as followers of Jesus. So whatever else we do, we must be about this work of telling people about Christ. There are lots of good things for you to get involved here at Harvest. There's lots of good opportunities. We're always looking for more VBS workers. But Jesus doesn't require us to have VBS or to have a choir or to have Sunday school, although those are all good things. But no matter what else we choose to do, we must do this. We must testify to Christ. So whether or not you choose to help out with VBS, you you can choose to help with that or not, but you can't choose to witness to Christ or not. This is our responsibility and privilege, and we have divine encouragement for the work. The power for evangelism in this passage is twofold. It's from the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's from the fellowship we have with Christ, because his followers have been with him. Beloved, you have the power of the Spirit in you, and you have fellowship with Christ. 
So you must tell people about him. In the face of many dangers, some considered George Washington indispensable and irreplaceable. But he was replaceable. We've replaced him dozens of times over and moved on as a nation. But as Christians, we cannot move on from Jesus. He cannot be replaced. And his final words to his disciples are our continual support and nourishment. He teaches us how to continually abide in him, to rely on him for spiritual life, to obey his commandments as a way to experience his love and joy. And in the midst of a hostile world, he not only charges us to invite others into his love, but to love one another. Friends, let us hang on these words until he comes again. Let's pray.